Okay, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for joining another of the 831 podcast hosts. And we're over the moon to be hosting Jim Mallinson this evening, and we'll be getting on with that shortly. I don't know about you guys, but I could have quite easily sat and watched the rest of that video for the rest of the night. It was absolutely captivating. Um, firstly, a, a big thank you, obviously, to the Avon Hangloading Paragliding Club for allowing us to do this again and making this possible. It's brilliant that we've got these resources, and thank you to you guys for listening. I understand everyone's in, in the same sort of boat, so we're just trying to put together these sort of things for you to keep you interested, and obviously it's, it's my podcast, so every listener for me is absolutely superb, so thank you to, to each and every one of you as well. Um, so we're going to go through the evening, as Sean said, with Jim tonight. We'll get to know Jim a little bit better. He's got some amazing stories. As Sean said, if you have any questions, ask them within Zoom. In the Zoom messaging box, ask them within the Zoom. Sean will then pick four or five or so, email them over to me, and I'll read them out for Jim at the end of the talk. But until then, I guess it's time to introduce Jim. Hey, where's Hello? Sorry, just in time. I had to go and get everyone in the house to turn off their internet. It was a bit slow here. Hello. <laughs> Jim, thank you very much for joining me. Um, it's a delight to be here. Um, yeah. Um, very yeah nice to thanks thanks for the invitation from you and Sean and uh, yeah looking forward to it hopefully I won't be too self-indulgent but I'm looking forward to having a chat oh, I'm hoping you'll be really self-indulgent self-indulgence is what we want from you <laughs> it, this has been for the people who don't know you and I have been planning on doing this for the 831 podcast for a while and it just happens that this this occurred and this I think is a, a much better way of doing things and it allows for you to show off a, a lot more of the things that you've got up to because as people are going to um, find out eventually, you're very multifaceted. It's not just going to be a talk about paragliding. You've got a lot of things and you have done a lot of things that I personally find very interesting. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Well, 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 yeah. I say yes. Some people find some of it in, interesting. It's all yeah, fairly look, esoteric stuff. We can try and try and go down that that as well. The other stuff I get up to. But I'm looking forward to talking about flying as well. Too much, too much talking about the other stuff. Teaching on Zoom all the time, so it makes a nice change to be able to talk about flying. <laughs> well, we will get plenty of flying talk done then. Um, so. Let's start at the beginning, really. You, uh, when did you start flying? How did you get into flying? Is it the the same old story? Is it something a little bit different? Uh, I don't know if it's the same old story as everyone else. It was a mate of mine. It was 1995, and a mate of mine rang me up and he said, uh, "Jim, let's learn to paraglide. There's a place we can do it near your house on the Isle of Wight." And I was like, "I said, great. What's paragliding?" I didn't have a clue. <laughs> I had no idea whatsoever. And then, and I, you know. I was up for it at a loose end. Well, I wasn't at a loose end, but, you know, I thought, yeah, I'll give this a go. And uh, I got completely hooked. And I did it with Claudia, my, who's now my wife, and this friend, Rupert. And they packed it in pretty quickly. It wasn't for them at all. And I just took to it instantly, especially when I found out, you know, first of all, like most people, you think you're just going to fly down. And even that first flight, I'll never forget that. The first time my, my feet left the ground, it was on the Isle of Wight. I was probably in the air for about five seconds, but you know that feeling will never go. And then I suppose the next progression was when I realised actually you could stay up on these things as well. And that's when I was just like, oh, this this is incredible, right? And and I was hooked. And I, I somehow I, for some reason I just took to it. And the others, yeah, you know, they were a bit slower. And in those days, I mean, it was. I watched that video the other day of the guy. I can't remember where he was from. 
But within a year of learning to fly, he was doing vol biv across Kyrgyzstan or somewhere. Oh, yeah. That was incredible. I mean, when we, you know, the thought of even getting in a thermal in your first year was kind of, yeah. that was not going to happen. So, so uh, what, yeah. were you, um, what, what were you doing with your life at that point? What, what were your hobbies? What were you into? Were you like always quite adventurous and up for trying new no. things? Or? No, not, no, not really. And I was never a kind of daredevil type at all. You know, you know, like when you're a kid or you're going to parties and stuff and there's the guys who are climbing out the window and doing silly things on the, <laughs> on the I bet you're probably one of those guys, Wes. <laughs> but uh, I was certainly not one of them. I was the guy who's trying to pull them in. And I've, you know, people think as well, don't they, about paragliding that it's, uh, oh, it's an extreme sport. You're in it for the adrenaline rush. And I'm like, no, if I'm getting an adrenaline rush, it's going wrong and I don't want to be silly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, um, I was in, I was, I've always, well, not always, but from 88, 89, I was spent most of my time in India, you know, half the year in India, a lot of time in the Himalayas. Why don't we talk about that some more? But no, I'd never done anything similar at all. You know, yeah, was, I've never been an extreme sports person or anything like that. A bit of skiing, but, you know, not much. Yeah, this, I, I find a lot of people who I've spoken to are generally drawn to this through, say, climbing or something similar, you know, they, they've done something that's quite adventurous or with, at least within the outdoors, you know, they've been like hikers or they've walked the Appalachian Trail, something, you know, there's just something that's drawn them to being outside and then they look up and see a paraglider. But for yourself, it was just a chance phone call, let's do this. And you were like, yeah. Yeah, why not? And I was at that time also, it was very good timing in terms of sort of development of, for, for me to be able to fly because I just started doing a PhD. Probably wasn't very good for my PhD. And in those days, PhDs were very flexible. You know, you didn't have to turn up much. You just sort of left to get on with it. And pretty soon I realised that if the sun was shining and it wasn't too windy, I was not going to get any work done. And I kind of even gave up on that. So I was just, and yeah, I was living in, I mean, I now live at the foot of Milk Hill, but I was living not far away near Chippenham. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was perfect. I could just get out and go flying all the time. So, so what was the, uh, what's the progression from there? You, you take to it, you enjoy it, you, you like it. <clears throat> what's the early sort of progression? Was there, I guess there wasn't much cross country flying back then. So was it just a case of flying around the hill or you were, you were constantly trying to go XC? Yeah, no, no. As I say, in those days, you know, XC was like still, you know, you're never going to jump straight into it. It was kind of, I think the things have accelerated so much, but what I was, I think the best thing that happened to me then was that pretty soon after I signed off, went off to India and spent three months in Goa where Claudia, my then girlfriend, now my wife, was working on a film. And I was meant to be sitting, you know, doing some work wherever we were living. And in fact, it's a perfect place just to go out. And I spent two or three hours every afternoon flying in the sea breeze. And so just got, you know, glider control completely under, you know, that was mm-hmm. that completely dark, got totally comfortable on the glider then. And with hindsight, there's nothing better I could have done. You know, I spent probably... 100 hours at least I should think over that winter 150 hours just playing around on the cliffs in, in Goa so yeah that that was good and also at the same time do you know the year before the the April before I was in India yeah this was funny I, mean, I was halfway through my training in the UK and found out about this school near Pune and uh, you know, I was super keen and went with Claudia we went off to um do a week's training there and the, we thought that you know the guy running it is a lovely guy amazing guy called Rajan Juveka with hindsight, he probably wasn't as clued up about paragliding as we thought. And one, the, the, the one standout memory was, because it was, it was April in Pune, Maharashtra, baking hot. And uh, we would only fly 
until about 11 o'clock in the morning when the thermals would start and then the wind would really pick up it would get much too strong and one day i was okay, we were on, i was on a harley can't remember what it was called a harley something and you know it was beginning to pick up so it's probably gonna be the last flight of the day and i picked up the wing turned around to take off and just fucking rocket excuse me sorry i don't know if i'm allowed to swear on this oh you can but swear no, rocketed straight up just obviously stepped into a complete ripper of the thermal and the last thing i heard was one of the instructors shouting lean forward okay so i just leant forward like that and i went up probably two and a half three thousand feet and the wind picked up and i was going and it took me back because the, the slope was right on the edge of Pune, this big city and i was looking behind me going oh shit there's a city and then luckily it kind of the wind dropped and i started going forwards and then i just stayed like that and i went flew out probably 2k in front of the hill and then just landed like that. <laughs> <laughs> So what the hell happened? And everyone asked us, you know, a few of them had done thermaling stuff. They're like, why didn't you turn in it? What were you doing? I was like, I didn't know what was going on. I'd, I'd never even soared before at that point. I'd never even yeah. done any, you know, beats up the hills, up and along the hills. So, yeah. And then it <laughs> was after that. Quite fire. That was, that certainly was. That was, uh, yeah, that was pretty hairy. I suppose some people might have packed it in at that point, but so what, I kept going. What, yeah. like you've mentioned India a few times what drew you to india what it was something that you were doing you were frequently going to india anyway it wasn't the paragliding that drew you to india you were already a, a frequenter of india anyway yeah yeah i went there i went to india in my in my gap yard as they say a friend of mine had come back from india uh he was a couple of years older than me who i was at school with and he just regaled me with all these tales of how wonderful it was and through a series of sort of quite a long story of coincidences i'd also I'd got a place at university where I decided I was going to read Sanskrit, which is the ancient language of India. So those two things came together. And uh, yeah, I'd already spent, you know, by, by the time I started flying in 95, when I was 25, I'd already spent, you know, two or three years probably in India at that point. Um, wow. And the, yeah, the one downside of the PhD was that I had to be busy. I had to be in the UK in October, November, which is the best season for flying in, uh, in the Himalayas. I didn't actually get to the Himalayas and about I think the first time I was there to, to fly was 2000 I think but all right I was already in the summer you know in the summer I was flying a lot at home uh, here in the UK and in Europe I was doing a few comps and stuff I got I was pretty hooked here but I never got that chance to go to uh, the Himalayas until late in my PhD and then once it had finished but uh, yeah yeah but India's been I've been to every year since 90 since 1988 I think so um when you progressed, you've moved on a bit, you've, you've been to India, but you've experienced, when did you first sort of start to experience cross-country within the UK and start to, uh, I guess you were one of the, the very early pioneer guys, you were there right at the beginning when it was just sort of taking off cross-country flying. Um, like, like, I don't know, I mean, it was more second wave. There were okay. definitely, you know, there were th things that had been happening already. 95, when I started to fly, I think that, I think it was 95... Or 97, maybe Steve Ham, he broke the record with 175k. I remember oh, that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So people I should know that. I've, I've done one of these with Steve, so I should have known that, really. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I started, so I think it was 98, 99. I had one lucky, I had, you know, got away from Oliver's and flew 60k. That was, that was about my second cross country, I think. And in those days, it was 57.3, you know, I can remember exactly. And in those days, every point of the kilometer mattered. And that was a pretty <laughs> long flight. And also, in those days, it was when you had to, you had to qualify to get into the nationals. 
Okay, so they were, I think, either through the XC League or through previous Nationals results. And then there were a couple of wild cards and stuff like that. So it kind of meant something. If someone was a Nationals pilot, that was a big deal. You know, yeah. wow, he's a Nationals pilot. And through, you know, that cross country from Oliver's and a couple of others, I managed to qualify for the, uh, the Nationals in, I think it would have been 2000. Yeah, pretty sure it was 2000. And I was thinking about this when I was preparing, you know, thinking about this talk today. A theme throughout my flying career, when I've done, I've, I haven't done many comps tour now for 10, 10 or more, you know, 15 years, I guess. But I've done, I've done a couple since then. But every time I've done a comp or sort of gone to a different level of comp, the first task of the first meet, something insane has happened. And that, that with, the, um, with the first nationals I did in 2000, there was a, the task was from Llandinam in Wales, and they set a 47k downwinder, but it was strong wind. And I got, you know, I got up, got away. I remember, again, just being a bit like when I was in India, got pinged straight off, straight up, almost going backwards, but into a thermal and was able to go with it. And then uh, got near the, did I have a GPS? I think I must have had a GPS. Yeah, I did have a GPS. It was just early days of GPSs. I had one of those MLRs, I think, or maybe a Garmin. And I got within a few K of the goal, but I wasn't going to get there. The wind, you know, the the task had been set slightly wrong, basically. And the wind was slightly off track to get to the goal. It was too windy. I got there. I got near, you know, I got three or four K away and was, you know, drifting past, trying to get towards it. It was about to land, get another climb. And I suddenly realized there's no way I'm going to get this goal. And this is a bloody good day. So sod it. You know, I was just too keen to fly. I'm going to keep going. And, uh, and I imagine that everyone, you know, loads of people will get to goal because it was all the sky gods, you know, it was all the, obviously all the, the, the great and the good of paragliding, all the nationals pilots were there. And I didn't land for another four hours or something. And when I landed, that was 132K, which wow. again, in those days was huge. So no one, I remember no one flew further than that for about five years. So there was, I come from nowhere, you know, this sort of uh, naive, you know, youngster. And, and suddenly I like, you know, flown further than most people had ever flown in the UK. So I was kind of got lucky there. That sort of made my name. I was given, even though, you know, even though I did very badly in the task, because I got nowhere near the goal compared to the others who did try and push and got a bit nearer. Uh, yeah. So, so that was good. Um, that sounds like a typical British task of any comp. So when we've had, um, like every time we have the North South cup, we have to, the number one thing we're banking on, right? Is calamity. That's the one thing it's, we have to all just be willing to enjoy whatever happens, whether that's, we can't get a coach up to take off and we've got a knock on carpet fitters, shop doors and stuff to get up to take off or, you know, the goal not being usable. So you will just fly on and make wherever you can. That just sounds like British paragliding tasks. Yeah, no, yeah, I agree. But I think these days, people, we've got better at, at task setting, though. I, I, I haven't heard of a task for a while where, no, where everyone just gets blown off course. Or have you? I don't know. <laughs> no, I certainly haven't heard of that. Definitely yeah. not, no. Because I remember landing, you know, I landed, my GPS said 99k from goal, but obviously down. <laughs> but, but, I, but I then, you know, managed to ring up, and uh, it was a bank holiday Monday. I remember, I've got a funny story about my retrieve on that one, but maybe you don't want to hear that. But And then ringing up, expecting, as I said, loads of people have got, had got to go, but no one had made it at all because it was just too windy. Yeah, and I got blown past. So did, uh, did anybody else decide to just carry on and just go for it? No, but a lot of people were pissed off. They hadn't tried afterwards. Yeah, they? I bet they were. Because I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, oh, here we go, oh, another thermal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a way to win the day, eh? What a way to win the day. <laughs> so then... um. You, you're now an established paraglider pilot and 
one of the one of the earliest things I learned about yourself as a as a pilot and paraglider was your trips to India with like Eddie and and stuff. So how does your experiences now in India develop into something that becomes guiding, or how do you take it to the next level? And do you do you build what you built within India? Well, yeah, so I, yeah, as I said, that was about the, the time I first went to Beard flying. I, mean, I was flying in India in Goa and Maharashtra in the south because I was only going in the winter. But um, the, So the first time I got out to Beard in autumn, I think it was 2099. And it's funny, I look back at that time as well. I was so gung-ho. You know, I got a lot, a lot more timid. The things I was doing literally on my first flights there, again, I was throwing myself in the back of valleys that now I look at, oh, no way. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, so I had a few years of going there in autumn, and then then what? I, well, it's no coincidence that we started Himalayan Sky Safaris in two thousand and six, and my first child was born in two thousand and five. It was an excuse <laughs> to keep keep going to India. <laughs> you know how it is. Turn it into a business, and so yeah, I've got a, got. Uh, I, I had had to go out there every every autumn after that. But that was yeah, Eddie and um, Eddie and John. You know, we're all we're going to be. A, intermittently you know i was i was a regular at that uh, uh, from as soon as i went in 2000 i would go for like you know um, six weeks every, every autumn um and then yeah got chatting to them and said you know let's do this why don't we make a make a business out of this get guardian i was amazed that john said yes it was fantastic you know that's another thing you know one thing i'd like to say is like i've been lucky and i think it's a good tactic as well for anyone who's kind of fresh into the sport is to hang out with and fly with the good guys as much as possible. That's how you learn, you know. Earlier on, like, I guess, just when I was getting into cross-country, I went on a guided course with Bob Drury and Jockey Sanderson. They were guiding it. And it was down in um, Gordon Greolier and uh, and Robbie Whittle and Hugh Miller were around. So we ended up flying with all these absolute legends. And, you know, I'm I'm a a teacher myself, but I'm I'm kind of somewhat sceptical about teaching in many ways as a way of imparting information i think the best way is just to copy the guys who are good already you know and then work it out for yourself pretty much um so yeah got to hang out uh with john and eddie a little bit there before we started himalayan sky safaris and then yeah 2006 we did our first first trips i mean that it it must have been amazing because i'm guessing india for western paraglider pilots was quite undiscovered was it quite you were quite fresh blood out there there was not many himalayan big himalayan yeah, not much. I mean, when, when we were first hanging out in in beer there were like you know there were rarely more than 10 people 10 foreign pilots there and hardly any indian pilots as well because they were you know they were t- took a while for the indian pilots to come on it was tricky there wasn't much kit around you know they couldn't really learn is the situation has changed massively um you know we would know everyone and now i think last time you know it was it's funny, I was looking at my pictures thinking it was this October because I've been every October for 20 years or whatever. <laughs> and then I remembered, no, this year hasn't happened, has it? And I, I was 2019. But yeah, when I was there last, I think there were 300 people. You know, wow. Insane. It's insane. But so takeoff is, is a bit hectic these days. But then then once you're up and, you know, I've got lots of pictures, actually. I mean, I don't know. I could try and uh, Yeah, share. yeah. Pop, pop be, some pictures up, definitely. I'll because I think um, it's like now when you start getting into the sport and you look at trips of where to go abroad you know the the 
Oladonez pops up and Annecy, and but the Himalaya trips are obviously really popular now, and you guys have sort of paved the way for that. So it's interesting to hear that it how it started from from practically nothing. Uh, yeah, yeah, there were very few. So there, yeah, there's a there's a Google Earth shot of of beer and the takeoffs round about there. Mm-hmm. So it's funny people think you know people probably think oh the Himalayas oh my god I've got to get really good to go there, but in fact. Flying in beard is way easier than flying in just about anywhere in the Alps, I think, because it's such a simple topography. And you can see it's just this big ridge. Goes, you know, it gets a bit lower going down that way, but you can just, I think I've got another picture after this. Let's see. Then you've just got spurs coming off the main ridge, one after the other. You climb on one, glide to the next, climb on one, glide to the next. It really couldn't be easier. There's hardly any wind. When the when the day heats up, it just pulls the air onto that main ridge, and yeah, couldn't couldn't be simpler. I mean, obviously, it gets a bit more exciting when you uh, you go behind the main ridge, then it <laughs> becomes a bit more complex, like the Alps. So that's what you know. It's perfect for from beginners to experts. Everyone can have a, a great time there. You just kind of choose what your level of commitment is for the day, and uh, and yeah, take it from there. What sort of height gain are you talking there? Uh, the highest I've ever got is about 5,800 meters, I think. People wow. have got higher, people have got over 6,000, I think. Um, you know, it varies quite a lot. Some days it's quite hard to get up, you know, and you're hard pushed to get to 3,000. But yeah, ver- yeah, varies. Generally on the front, you won't get to much. You're unlikely to get more than about three, five on the front. But then when you go in the back, then it all steps up a bit. There's often, there's layers in the air. It's often quite inverted, so... Yeah, you kind of, you know, you can go from being on one of these front spurs here and it's a slightly inverted day or something and you're really having to scratch. You kind of just have to keep going round and round and round and round and round and round in circles and slowly stepping up. And then once you get high enough to go in the back and it goes boom and off you go to super, super high. Have you, um, so have you pushed much over the back and done much exploring for yourself and much adventure there? I have. I mean, I listened to your podcast with Tosh and it made me feel a bit inadequate and, uh, because I've never, I, and I was thinking about it, I don't think I've ever gone off for more than like five or six days, Volbiv. But I've done a lot of exploring around the beard area, you know, pushing. I've got a few pictures. Let's see if that's going to work. Five or six days exploring in the, Himala- in the Himalayas is pretty epic, though, mate, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's- yeah, but I haven't got completely, you know, I'm in Western Nepal, I imagine you're feeling pretty lost. Yeah, not every spur's got places to land on as well. So it's like the, the most incredible place to kind of learn to to do Volbiv and if you're lucky as you might have seen in the in the film at the beginning of people were watching there's uh, normally shepherds around as well so if you get land near a shepherd camp they might look after you you know you get a bit of milk from their their, their, their sheep or goats for your tea and stuff <laughs> um have a good chat but yeah I think I've got some yeah and here's some here's some good pics over the back so I mean I think a lot of these shots they're from various different flights, but a couple of them use a sort of uh, a route you fly to. You can fly to the Kulu Valley, Manali, which is a sort of tourist town. And it's by car, it's six or seven hours or something, but you can fly it in sort of two and a half, but you've got to cross some quite high passes. So in there, I think it's one of the passes. I think I've got a photo actually here. Yeah, you can make out a tiny glider there. I've, you can I've, see my, is, it's see my mouth. Frozen. Your screen's actually frozen from me. Um, it's frozen. I'm actually still on the, the front edge. Um, oh right yeah close close that down and reopen that picture maybe but okay 
Should I stop? Can other people see what I'm showing? No, it looks like it's coming up. That it's frozen for people. Okay, hang on. There we go. Your screen's working. I can see you fine. Just your screen share didn't there. Try that again. How's that? Um, it's just saying it's started screen sharing, but there's nothing on there. Do you think it's me going slow? Sean sent something. I can check whether my children are breaking the rules. It's, it, yeah, it just says it's trying to uh, share the screen, Jim. Yeah. Because I can see it. It's come up. It says you are screen sharing. Yeah, it just says that you've started screen sharing, but I can't actually see anything. Maybe we'll let it settle down for a couple of minutes and come back. All right, so, um, because I'm sure you've got... Ah, oh, there we go. We've got a good picture now. Oh, yeah. Move your cursor a minute, Jim. You seeing that one? Yeah, yeah. See, that's with see the that's tiny Ed. little glider, yeah. Yeah, that's Eddie. Yeah. Somewhere in the back. I've got a few more. So you see, wow. so this is actually, yeah, this is on the way to Manali, and that's the Kulu Valley there. Um, so you, you, you've got to be very high to cross this snowfield. Yeah, it's another thing. I mean, I'm, I don't know the first thing about mountaineering or anything like that. You know, I wouldn't know which end of a crampon to put on. So sometimes I feel a bit stupid flying. There, I've learned that it's the sharp end down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I find one when I've bombed out some. Take that piece of advice with you, Jim. I can offer you that. That's about as far as my knowledge goes. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I try try not to land too high. Anyway, you must still have some pretty amazing stories, though, mate, from from your time there. Your uh, mm. your, your your things things that you've seen, things that have happened. You know, like all the years you've been there, you must just be full of amazing. I have got stories. one lined up here somewhere. I think I can't remember what order I put these pictures in, but I think it'll come up in a minute. So I'll just tick through these. Wow, look at the terrain. That's one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite spots. Yeah, it's a it's a holy lake. They do a trek up there once a year. It's like they could they get there in a day from the nearest village, but it's like eight hours and then they camp and walk down. Wow. So how how far are you how far are you generally from somewhere if you were to land out here? I mean obviously you wouldn't probably. Mountaineer mountain flying. The thing is, is yeah, you rarely you re when you land out, because you at this point you're so high that you can, unless you really cock up and crash or something, you can always glide out pretty much yeah. to a village. It's pretty rare that you find yourself. Because even, even, yeah, I mean, I suppose some of those, there was that one hanging valley I showed you. If you got low in there, you'd be in trouble. But I've never had, you know, I've always, I've always got somewhere by evening. I've never, unless I wanted to camp out, you know, I've always been able to get to somewhere. Um, but this is four and a half thousand metres or something, I think, this lake. Wow. Um, that's a flight back there's one, one yeah, something we did a few years ago Eddie and a bunch of mates we managed to fly back from Manali that was that was the first time anyone had done that I that think. looks like it would be booming there it was but yeah actually now you mention it I think it was around about here I got the strongest thermal I've ever had which is how, going how strong like, yeah I mean it, I mean I think it was about eight meters on average though yeah wow yeah yeah, you don't get, I mean, it's not crazy strong there either. Um, and are we talking sort of big, wide thermals or little small punchy stuff, or does that vary with the... It depends, with yeah, the once season? you get over the back and it's not inverted, you get nice big, big wide ones, yeah. Um, but on the front, if it's inverted, you're, yeah, you, you really have to turn tight. It's good, it trains you for every kind of condition, to be honest. You know, sort of UK, UK groveling is quite good when you're on the front, that sort of patience to just <laughs> keep going round and round and round and stick with it, stick with it. What about wildlife, birds and stuff? Uh, many like birds, um, yes, griffins. I think, actually, I think I can. 
Oh, here we go. Good timing. Well, well, you timed that one nicely. There's a good picture of a, a Griffin, HGV, Himalayan wow. Griffin Vulture. I guess lots of people might have seen that. Well, if you haven't, you've got to check out on YouTube um, Paraglider versus Eagle, the yeah. Russian guy who was in beard who had one going to his lines. So they're the, the biggest ones, but there's all kinds of different sorts of eagles flying around. And this, this one's my favourite, the Lamagaya. Lamagaya. You don't see so many of them. I got This is a very lucky picture I got. And, it's a beautiful uh, picture. They're the ones, the bearded vulture, they're the ones that drop drop the bones to smash them so they can eat eat the marrow. Um, wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's pretty so, uh, it's pretty uh, wild yeah, out yeah, there. Me, me, John and Eddie, we've all got a bit older. I think that was the beginning of uh, Sky Safaris. But um, yeah, one of the things we used to do, I mean, I because I haven't since I since I got a proper job, curses of that, I haven't been working with, with John and Eddie. I get out there a bit, but I haven't got the time to, to do it. But we, um, we set up, what, one of the things we could do is get people to, the local guys to set up a camp that we fly to. You know, it's kind of raj style in a way, but that was great. So you could, with the, with the group, you fly and it's like a luxury vol-biv and you land and you're greeted with a cup of chai and, you know, you get a nice dinner in the evening and all of that. So you can see down here, that's the camp. What a place to land there. That looks amazing. Yeah, it's brilliant. In fact, that's in the film, in the in the film that we started showing, that's the first place we land. So I just kind of scoped it out then, and then we turned it into... A... In fact, things have changed there as well. They've built a couple of little lodges as a French guy's built an amazing place. Um, so did you... Um, so obviously, India's been a massive focus for you, A, because of... Like for for your personal life and stuff, and then with paragliding, what about adventures elsewhere? Have you have you taken paraglide? You've been other places in flown, like other than just with comps. Sorry, I, I you broke up there. I don't know if it's I think. Where, where have you been elsewhere? Where have you taken your flying? Has it led you other places to like? Have you been done any adventures um, elsewhere? Have you just stuck because it's such an amazing place in the Himalayas? I mean, I can imagine you just spend a lifetime just flying there and not worry about going anywhere else. Yeah, mainly. No, I haven't. I mean, I did a f fair bit in the Alps, but I haven't flown in the Alps for a while. The one big adventure I did, other than India, was in Ethiopia in two thousand and one. I think it was with um, with Innes Powell and Bob Drury. That was a hell of an adventure. That was crazy. I mean, it you know, that was wild country. Some of the places we landed there, some of the people we met, you know, put make 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 even the the most kind of remote villages in India seem very very sort of civilized and sophisticated. There were guys I met. There was one place we land. We'd land in places there in Ethiopia, and uh, people would would scatter. They'd be totally freaked out. They wouldn't even come and talk to us. That was quite disturbing, you know. Wow. And they wouldn't come. And then I remember one. One bunch of guys came to talk to us, and every, they, they were only wearing animal skins and things made from guns, basically. It was kind of bits <laughs> of ammo belts and things made out of metal from from guns, and then animal hide. Yeah, that was that was wild. Very reassuring when you land <laughs> about how you're going to get back animal skins and ammunition. Yeah, and the one I remember one place we we had to walk down. The weather was shit, and we got to a road, and again, so different from India. We waited seven hours before a vehicle came by. You know, bloody hell! So remote. It was it was a big main road as well. It was one of the main roads joining, joining two areas. But yeah, nothing going on at all. That was great. Uh, I think it's pretty dicey again, wasn't it? It cooled down a bit in Ethiopia, and I kept wanting to try to go back, but it hasn't happened. And I think it's all a bit hot there again, isn't it? Well, yeah. So uh, you are the second person to actually say to me about flying in Ethiopia. They said flying in Ethiopia is pretty full on. It's really good flying. Um, yeah. 
I wasn't from listening to their stories. I wasn't massively sold on flying there, um, and you haven't exactly sold it to me again. So <laughs> maybe maybe I, I'll go. I'll come to you with you to the Himalayas before we head off to Ethiopia. Maybe. Yeah, it's a bit. Yeah, I think it's a bit probably a bit easier, a bit more in, infrastructure. But I think people have been flying in Ethiopia a bit more since we went, and there may be a bit more knowledge to to build on. But yeah, the people were great. The people, I, I loved it. But no, yeah, I that's generally. That generally the way isn't it you go to somewhere like that even though you're doing something that's pretty crazy and pretty wild it can generally subdue the people who maybe aren't as welcoming previously when they see you land on this great big paraglider or you're carrying there's automatically no matter where you're on the world there's this like people are inquisitive and they want to know what's happening and when you start telling them what, what you're doing it is pretty uh, pretty amazing to people who who have nothing to relate to it to yeah, that's very true. And in, in beard, of course, you know, people, uh, when we're in the early days, you get big crowds and you still get big crowds and everyone's very friendly when you land out, but it's obviously not quite such a big deal anymore. Um, but yeah, so everyone's so, so friendly there. It's great. What's the one you landed in a school grounds, in the school grounds? They were pretty friendly. Were they? Yeah. What, was that? what about the kids? Was, was that? I think it was like more of a village. Who's this? Is that for us? Or is that... Right, I thought that was you, Jim. Then someone unmute. Someone's unmuted. I thought it was you. I thought your wife had come on, Jim, no. and was grassing you up. It's not my kids, but I was just looking at the thing. I've just stopped their internet because mine's all going a bit slow. Here. <laughs> I thought you were being grassed up for something you'd done. Then I thought you. No. Were... <laughs> no, it wasn't me. It must be someone else. Somebody else has got a dodgy landing story. Yeah. They'd have to tell us that one, and that can come out at the end. <laughs> Um, so, um, yeah, so you asked if I've got any any stories from from beer, and I've got I have got one lined up with some pictures. I think if you want me to tell that, it's one of my oh, one hundred percent. So, how did the story go? Where are we in my pictures? Well, it was I remember it was the last day of the season. Eddie and I had been guiding. I think John had I don't know if, for some reason John maybe John had left already, and we wanted to have a good day. Go and go. Or maybe you know maybe we had two two days left, and we wanted to have a good go in the back go and have a big big fly in the back and for some reason there was a screw up with the taxis that was it my glider got stuck down i'd walked up but had to wait too long for the guy i was in really bad mood real hurry uh took off in a rush and um clearly had forgotten to zip up my harness properly like my the, the back of the harness and we went on we, we did a little tour of the back so i think this is maybe from that flight this this picture so we've we've come over the main ridge but now we're running out of time we've got to push back forward can you see my cursor when i do this? yeah yeah so we're pushing back uh in this sort of direction down to here i've got another slide here so yeah we would have come over here this isn't from the same flight in fact maybe uh, yeah so we would have come over here and we were gliding along there and uh i suddenly felt a bit of a, a shuffle around about here quite high above the ridge probably you know, at least 500 meters above the ridge and i felt something weird and i looked down and I could see my first aid kit, which was fluorescent yellow, falling below me. I was like, oh, shit, that's a bit weird. And then I felt behind me and I was like, oh, shit. The back of the harness was completely empty. So the, the glider bag had fallen out. And in the glider bag was this big bum bag, which had my sat phone, my passport, my wallet, 400 quid in it. No. You name it. Credit card, everything. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And we, so Eddie and I... We kind of flew around here for a bit, but it was late in the day. There was nothing we could do. And, uh, 
and my radio wasn't working very well either. I couldn't really talk to Eddie, but luckily Eddie had seen it and he vaguely marked it on his GPS. And then we flew back to Beer. And I told, you know, I landed in the land. I was like, oh my God, you know, I was meant to be the next day. I had one more day to fly, then had to, uh, you know, go back down to Delhi and, and fly home. But I didn't have a passport, I didn't have any money. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And um, so we ran, it was a bit like the Magnificent Seven. We rounded up a posse. I've told a few mates. And in the end, there were eight of us. So it was me and Eddie and six other friends, including Kiko and his girlfriend on a tandem, a couple of tandems. Uh, yeah, Antoine Laurent, do you know who I mean? He did the big yeah. traverse and his wife, Lynn. Uh, and then it was Yitka and, oh God, I forget his name. Terrible, he's probably listening. Um, Duncan, I haven't seen two of them, I haven't seen since. Anyway, so we, we were like, you know, let's go. Let's go and see if we can find this thing. And uh, this is the Chachu, who's the, the guy who is sadly no longer with us, but he used to run the chai shop, on the, the, the one chai shop on takeoff. And we told him what we were going to do. We said, you know, is there anything we need to look out for? Will there be anyone there? And he said, oh, yeah, a few. Probably might, might, you might, probably not, but you might meet some hunters. And we are like, oh, yeah. What are they going to be hunting for? He said, bears. It's <laughs> a bit exciting. And how do they hunt for them? He said, well, rifles and traps. So, okay, oh. great. So we're going to be r- rummaging around the mountain, you know, in the, in, in the forest looking for this thing. It's going to be bloody great, you know, bear traps around. So that kind of spiced things up a bit. And uh, anyway, so this shows you. So this Waldo's the peak. We came flying down here. I dropped it somewhere around here. And then yeah, we flew in and Yitka, who's a quite, she hadn't been flying long. She was amazing, Polish, Polish lady. And she landed in the toughest place near us. Most of us landed here. And then of course it was a bloody long walk to get there. You know, it looks like it's not far, but in the Himalayas, what looks like a five minute walk from the air is normally about an hour, you know, and it took bloody ages to walk all the way. So this is us flying along. That's the landing, that's Antoine and Lynn, where they landed the tandem. Um, and then we set off. Yeah, there's Tony, Antoine, and we set off. And you can see, so basically, it landed in this sort of area around there. It's incredibly steep, Himalayan hillside. And of course, you know, we only had a vague point. I, you know, we all thought this is a complete wild goose chase. There's absolutely no chance we're going to do this. Um, there's Eddie, and it was it was already about sort of two o'clock by the by this time, and we had to walk there. But by the time we were actually got into the search area which is here it was getting quite shady um and we 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 spread out um and it was you know no paths or anything it was complete dense jungle we're on radio we're looking for an hour or so and it was beginning to get dark and after a while we're like okay guys you know we all agreed on the radio this is too much we're not gonna you know we might as well make our way back up a bit dejected we had to climb back up and it was um and then I got to the top with a few of the others and then we were on the radio and the radio was a bit broken, but we did hear, we heard from uh, Antoine and Eddie, they'd, they'd paired up and they were climbing back up. And I think it was Antoine was ahead of Eddie and he looked back they're literally having to climb up through trees, a little cliff face. They looked back, Antoine looked back at Eddie and then there on a little plat, little ledge behind him was the bag with the, with everything in it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Wow. The chances of fight was talk about a needle in a haystack. It was way beyond that and uh yeah so this is us we were sitting we just heard this on the radio that we, found. we couldn't believe it it was like yeah we found it no 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 but we must have misheard absolutely impossible wow. and then but then then it was obviously too late most people everyone was hoping to fly off again but it was too late basically because no way we were going to get to a takeoff in time to fly so we had to walk if you look at that we had to walk all the way back from the search area to here is where we ended up camping so that took a you know an hour and a half i think at least 
And on the way, we did see, in fact, Lynn, Antoine's wife, reckoned she saw a, a, a bear. She's completely freaked out. And we did see that there's evidence of bears, you know, scraping the, <laughs> scraping the tree. The other thing we saw, which is a bit less, less exciting, more fun, was um, flying squirrels as well, because at dusk you get them. These oh, yeah? squirrels that have got like, you know, they've got webbing between their, their legs and they jump out the trees and they glide down. That was pretty cool. That's and then amazing. we got, yeah. And then we got, got to the end there, made a huge fire. And uh, we, between us, we did have a bit of food in our harnesses and stuff. We all managed to eat okay. And the tandem wallers made a tent out of their tandems and they were all cosy. And yeah, that was fantastic. So, was, did, you, did you manage to get everything back? Everything, everything was fine. Sat foam was working, everything absolutely fine. Wow. Must got, the fall must have been broken through the trees. And yeah, the biggest yeah. relief of that was seeing a picture of Eddie with a beard. We don't need to see one without. <laughs> well, having seen the one earlier of him without a beard. Yeah. Exactly. I was, thinking, yeah. I was showing these to a friend earlier, and he was like, "Eddie looks much better with a beard." Yeah, he? order has been restored now. <laughs> like the Matrix was upset for a moment when Eddie didn't have a beard. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. That is real. Like yeah. the, the possibility of finding that would just. But I mean, lots of people would have just. Get, well i'm never going to find that i'm not bothered going back but you assembled exactly. that little team and then you even find it just as you're giving up looking for yeah. it really, which is amazing yeah. and the and also again if it if they hadn't if everyone else hadn't been so enthusiastic it was come on we'll, we'll give it a go come on we'll you know we've got a chance here i because I, I was so pissed off with myself and i was already pissed off with the day you know because i was late and i'd missed the day and then you bloody idiot and i kind of i'd written it off and everyone's like no no come on you know we'll, we'll have a try we'll have a try so it was a sort of collective willpower was fantastic yeah that's uh so it was just an error from you just being rushed feeling rushed on takeoff just chucking everything in it was just that sort of error exactly being frustrated pissed off in a a hurry and yeah didn't didn't zip up the the back of the harness it's amazing how uh how these tiny little mistakes i mean this is a harmless mistake you lose some some bits but it can be your reserve handle getting caught on something it can be it can be so many and you are a very experienced pilot who knows exactly what they're doing but it's just amazing how just in that split second that's when something can just go wrong yeah 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 don't yeah don't don't get cross as well if you if you could find yourself in a bad mood when you're about to take off you really want to stop yourself slow down and check that you're doing everything right you know yeah not not a good state of mind to take off in (laughs) definitely not definitely not it does look like an amazing place to fly and i think when uh look having heard tosh's story and then now hearing your story from beer i think when all this is over uh, there's going to be a big push for me to go because i've spent some time in the alps and obviously i've spent a lot of time in the pyrenees um but i think it will be a push for mine to get to fly there because i just think it just looks so so wild and so vast but so appealing like it, it, the people seem to be really appe- and i've spent time in india i've been to india for fighting yeah so um i've one of my guys has fought in india a couple of times so i've been to mumbai new delhi um and somewhere else i can't think where mumbai new delhi and somewhere else but everybody is just everyone i met was lovely and i just think somewhere like to do what you're what you've done there I am really sort of captivated by it now. The flying's big, it's adventurous, but it doesn't have to be crazy. And the people seem lovely. Yeah, no, you can't go wrong. I used to feel a bit bad about promoting it so much and it getting too too busy and too popular, but I think that cat's out of the bag now. (laughs) (laughs) 
You've ruined it for everyone, Jim. That yeah. you've ruined it. For yeah. <laughs> but I think it'll be uh, like from from what I'm getting from you is it for lesser experienced pilots is also quite a good place to go. And I think it the the possible the Alps can turn quite bad quite quickly for young pilots, you know, who are just learning. But that sounds like somewhere you could go to beer and you could play and then you could go back next time and it starts to open up a little bit more at a time for you as you start to explore just slightly more. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. As I say, you can just, you you know, you'll, you could totally choose your level of commitment from, you know, from doing a top to bottom to a lovely, great big open landing field to going in the back and doing crazy Volbiv stuff. But um, the one thing you do obviously got to bear in mind is that obviously, you know, rescue facilities. Well, rescue is quite good. Even the locals are now really clued up and everyone obviously you want to fly with an inReach or a spot or whatever. And they'll, people will come and find you pretty quickly. But of course, the hospital's not great and there's no helicopters pretty hard. You know, it's still a bit tricky um, and they have to come from quite a long way away. And the nearby hospitals aren't great. Obviously, once you get to Delhi, it's a lot better. But yeah, so you want to still big margins. But, you know, I was flying easy wing. I, I think only once, once I took a comp wing out there for a competition, but generally I've never flown anything, you know, racier than a C there just to feel comfortable. So you've got to bear that in mind. But um, that aside, which obviously is very important, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant, brilliant place for anyone to fly. I think anyone ever gets disappointed when they go there and the weather as well is ridiculously reliable when you go in autumn. Sp- so spring, the, uh... you get better days. Yeah, the Spring, season's quite short there, is it? Season's very short, that's the only thing, yeah. The season generally sort of mid-October to mid-November, something like that. Of course, apparently this year was the best season ever. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> no one was there. But that's be- Yeah, that's just simply because there wasn't a load of foreigners weighing the sky down. Exactly. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's what that they was. say, who knows, but that's what everyone was saying. All the local guys were telling us. Yeah. So would you say your, your most memorable... Um, your most memorable flights or the flights you've enjoyed the most have been there or you have experiences from everything that because i mean you've got a, a, a flight that i really want to do in the uk you have which is a flight to the isle of Wight. now where you did it from is not where i want to go from <laughs> where i want to go from is a bit tricky but your flight was pretty pretty amazing when i heard where do you want to go from i'd like to go from westbury and then cross where you'd have to go uh, it's just down by pool sort of right but isn't i mean i actually i've got i've got the pictures for that as well because i knew we were going to talk about that but you have to be with mine you'd have to cross really low yeah exactly you've got to do about 10k actually i can't remember where but hang on where are we you've got to do about under 2000 feet for a long time yeah for quite a long way i don't think it's feasible that whereas that's why because basically so i'm flicking through all these but i think i've got here we go so yeah that's so that's the flight Oh, uh, there we go. But yeah, here is now from about there, isn't it? Is all I should have put the airspace on, but yeah. But so if you come around the edge, you can just t- so off that just off that little spur, you can just tag on the edge. So you you wouldn't be as far, but it's pretty big, yeah. <laughs> okay, I wasn't aware of that because when I when I learned to fly, so of course I learned to fly on the Isle of Wight round about here. Yeah. And in fact, I remember one of the hang glider guys when I was learning to fly, he did a huge flight up to Gatwick or something from the island. I don't know. You must have crossed here. But people people did used to fly quite often. Well, I don't know. I mean, a dozen people, I think, at least, managed to fly on paragliders on this route before the airspace was shut. 
mm-hmm. or, or made or, or lowered, you know, down down to two thousand feet ceiling. And so, and that basically just that happened just as I got into flying cross country. And of course, coming um, having had a long attachment with the Isle of Wight and having learned to fly there, I was super keen to fly back. So it's always been my dream flight. And I'd got so this is this is the track of mine when I did it. When was it? it must have been. 2018 i think it was the middle of middle of june um but yeah so the the only the only possibility since then i as far as i'm concerned maybe if you, if you think you can skim along at under 2000 for that that'll be very impressive it right? would just because i got to swanage i was sort of like i've done swanage a few times now so i was looking i was thinking oh maybe this would maybe oh it'd be oh, maybe you just have to not post your track log <laughs> <laughs> yeah poke, poke up poke up above it a bit or maybe get on radio maybe you could talk to uh, air traffic control they might let you. yeah there we go <laughs> no, i think it would be it would definitely be tricky but um so talk us through your flight that you did in 2000 because i can remember you doing it i can remember when it when it happened and it got posted and i was sat on the train on a retrieve home somewhere looking through the flight thinking wow that's amazing Mm. well so it had to be the perfect kind of day in that we wanted a, a light northerly not too strong because i had to get because coombe is here mm-hmm. i had to get around again there's no airspace on it, but no airspace mark but there's lots around here that you can't go through so from about here i'm going around the airspace so i didn't want it to be too windy otherwise it'd be impossible to to cro- track crosswind and then got to portsmouth and actually, I'd got there before. I'd been there twice before. I tried twice before and bottled it because I wasn't getting lift over Portsmouth. And I, even though I remember one time there was a good cloud. Yeah, I've got some pictures. So that's approaching Portsmouth. Portsmouth is here. Um, yeah, Portsmouth here, the Spinnaker Tower. And I'd got here before. In fact, one time there was a nice cloud just, you know, in the Solent downwind. But I thought, and I, but I was probably, I can't remember how high, a couple of thousand feet. But I thought, that is too necky just to glide out under a cloud that, not not know you're going to be high enough so I, I bottled it i've landed in yeah landed in portsmouth a couple of times um because also we have a family house as my we've had it for years there on the beach there so my dream was to fly there okay so i got here you can see where i got to and it was all going quite nicely you know i had a sort of 10k tailwind reasonably high i think base was about three seven and when I set out over the water, I was at about three and a half. When I when I committed, I thought, okay, I'm never, you know, this is it's not going to get much better than this. Let's go for it. But you can kind of see as well though that the so if you look one of the earlier pictures, you can see there's a few clouds, but you can kind of tell that they're beginning to dissipate already. Mm-hmm. And I should have paid a bit more attention to that, perhaps, because with hindsight, it was a it was a stupid decision, really. I cut it a bit fine. You can see here. Again, you know, there's a few clouds around there, but then there's la- that picture, they're, they're disappearing, aren't they? And then, yeah. then there, they're really beginning to disappear. There's one left. And so I've set off here. And for the first sort of few minutes, because it's 7K, it's quite a long way across water. Yeah. I measured it after the thing. Okay, I didn't really, well, I had no, I did know it was, I did know it was that far because I spent a lot of e- winter evenings looking at the map, thinking about it. <clears throat> but when I set off, so I had the tail and it was still quite buoyant. It was kind of, it had kind of a lifty line and I was feeling, um, you know, pretty, pretty pleased with myself. It was all looking good and you can kind of see here. So that's my um, track on overlaid onto Google Earth. And then there's more of it, but you can see how it gets a bit bad down there. And there's a, a side view. 
So this is when I kind of committed. I'd taken a few zeros and went off and maybe did another zero there. It was all feeling pretty good. And then, I, oh shit, I kind of started to hit the sea breeze as I went across. And so from thinking this is going to be a breeze, I'll get a, oh, no pun intended, I'll get a climb over the island and I'll be able to fly home. I put the keys to the house in my pocket. I was all ready. And then suddenly when I got to about here, I think I started sitting up going, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? <laughs> well, also you've, pa- you've crossed it one of the widest parts. Yeah, because, well, I could have gone a bit that way, I suppose, and crossed it. Yeah. But when I was here, you see, I thought this is, this is fine. I'm, I'm, yeah. It's easy. I'm in. No problem. <laughs> okay, there were loads of height. Um, but I, and then I got, then I really tensed up. I remember, and I got to a point, I guess it was around about here when I thought, okay, it's going to be tight, but I'm going to be make it. And I started just yeah, screaming. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Made yourself so more weird. aerodynamic as well, which yeah. helped. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, uh, cause I, so I left, as I said, with about three and a half thousand feet. I was, that's how high I was. And I, when I crossed the coast, I was at 500 feet here and I landed wow. somewhere around about there, I think. So you, you did, look, you it look, was necky. That it was definitely necky. Looking back, it's quite a long way. Yeah, it certainly in, is. In, into the sea breeze. So I don't know. I was thinking about it. If people have done it since as well from the mainland. I think the best place would be to do it from Harting down. There's a northeasterly just on the, on, the, on the South Downs. Then it's only about 20k to the coast, I think. Um, I don't know what the best conditions would be. I suppose maybe I could have been a bit earlier. I can't remember the exact timings. But it'd be nice to get there before the sea breeze had kicked in. But what wing were you on, Jim? I was on Zeno. Uh, Zeno, I thought so. Yeah. 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 So it was a good, good performing wing as well. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's a, that's an amazing flight, isn't it? It's just, but I mean, is it? Did Innis fly from the Isle of Wight back to the mainland? Yes. Yeah, he'd done yeah. it from the yeah back to the exactly. I think he was the first to do that. Yeah. But there have been plenty of hang gliders have done it. Plenty have flown to the island. Um, I don't know if any have done it the route I did, any hang gliders, but plenty have done it the, the other route to the, the West End, yeah. Yeah, what an amazing, an amazing flight. Yeah, I'm not sure I'll be repeating it. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I will be trying. I'll be, I'll be the guy, I'm going to just, every time I'm just going to take like a little inflatable duck or something with me. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at boats below me thinking, mm, can I land on that? <laughs> <laughs> or at least, can I land near it so I can get rescued at least? Get rescued, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, that's, it was an, a, that's an amazing flight. That has to go down surely as one of your, your most memorable UK flights. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, also, mate, something that... Um, I wanted to talk to you about it was the North South cup because I've been lucky enough to be in the team a few times now. And I absolutely love it. I, I really love the North South cup It's like my favorite thing each year because it's, there's nostalgia. And when I first started paragliding, I'd hear about all oh, the North South cups this weekend. And I was like, how, how do you get involved in that? Like, no, no. It was like invite only. I was like, ah, oh, imagine being a pilot invited to that. And it was just, then you hear a bit more, once you've been a few times, you hear a bit more what is about and you're there and there's a laugh and it's fun. It, it is just, it is everything that I think paragliding competitively should be. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's just a great, great fun weekend. Oh, great. Well, that's so good to hear, Wes, because that was the whole point, you know. I, I, just, I could, could tell you some more stories about my early comp career, but I, well, in, in brief, I, I, I think I did things too fast and I ended up in the, in the PwC in 2004 
on a new comp wing that I hadn't flown. And as I said, like one of my first first tasks in new comps have always been a bit exciting. And I, it's a long story, so I won't tell. But I ended up throwing my reserve, and it was I was fine. So where were you? It was in uh, Bassano and Feltre. It was split between the two. Okay. Been, the, what, the weather had been rubbish, which is another thing that kind of so the various things that put me off, you know, proper comp career. And one of them was being stuck in places in shit weather for a week, you know, mm-hmm. not doing anything. And then this, I kind of realised that. I was moving, I'd, I'd stepped up too fast and that they probably needed a bit more. I mean, I'm always amazed, more training because I'm always amazed by these guys you read about. Is it Luca Donini and whatever who, you know, only fly three comps a year and don't fly any other time and, mm-hmm. and manage to keep on top of it. I, what happened with me is I had this new, it was a gradient AVAX RSC and I basically, I don't think I'd even flown it before the comp. And I got, um, so we had, our, we had six days of rain and then the last day we managed to have a task and pretty soon from takeoff i got stuck somewhere with a bunch of people managed to climb out get out of there not many of us got out of there so i was feeling very pleased with myself there was a ga- lee gaggle was ahead and we had to race along the ridge and i thought um i thought okay right here i you know here i am pwc i'll catch these guys trimmers full off speed bar full on and then within about 10 seconds whack and the whole thing just went berserk and uh, through my reserve and ended up, I was so lucky, like that one bit of grass on this huge rocky and wooded hillside. But yeah, I kind of, I thought, mm, you know, maybe there's more to this. I need to be more committed to the training and stuff and the handling of the <coughs> comp wing and so forth. And Because I remember I went up to the, there was a guy called Akim Juice, who was the, I think he was a test pilot for Gradient at the time, he was known as Big Bird. And I, I went, I said, hey, you know, I threw my reserve on your glider today. What's going on? He said, well, tell me about it. I said, well, you know, I had the trimmers full off, I had the speed bar full on, and he just looked at me and said, you know, you completely... <laughs> <laughs> yes. When you were telling the story initially, I was like, well, I'm not sure comp, comp paragliding's the problem. Yeah, exactly. You need to do a bit more research here. And I just... I Anyway, so I kind of got slightly... I mean, my own fault, probably. I'd sort of decided that maybe top-level comps wasn't my thing. And again, I got fed, I did a few British nationals overseas legs where the weather was rubbish and it's stuck through. And I, I kind of got fed up with it. But I always did the UK leg. I've always enjoyed that, even though often that was rubbish. It was a write-off. But when it was good, it could be so good. We had, a, we had one at the Long Mind where we had four incredible tasks over four days. And I just used to love that when it went well. But then they stopped doing it. The comps panel you know, decided against it because often the weather would be terrible. And it was around about then or a couple of years after that, that I was talking to Hugh and Jockey about it. And we said, you know, let's try and get something else going in the UK. And uh, that's when the North-South Cup was born with this idea that we don't choose the venue until, you know, a day or two before. And that, I mean, we, we, we used to try for four days. We've got a bit lazier on that. And so now, now we rarely do two even. But we, we still manage always pretty much to get one cracking day out of it. Because yeah. if... You know, if you, I think it was only one year where we've completely had to pin it, where the weather won in the end. You know, we'll postpone it and try again, but we had to give up. But generally, we've, you know, we've broken lots of records. And because when they again, if you throw enough good pilots on a good day into the air, they're going to get something good done. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, yeah, it's been, I'm, I'm very glad to hear you say how much you enjoy it because I absolutely love it. And I, yeah, it's I, it turned out it, very I think well. It, like it, it brings out as well the best of UK flying. I mean, that those two days that we had in the Lake District a couple of years ago, they 
you that you can fly a whole season and not have a weekend like that in the Lake District. So for us to have all descended on there, and then the first day was a bit more, you know, Barney and I pushed right out front really quickly, got away quickly, flying through rain clouds, landed on the ground. 20 minutes later, the rain had cleared and people carried on to goal. You know, it was one of those amazing days where it was like, oh, touch and go. Is it going to be good? Then the second day was just the most epic flying in possibly the most beautiful scenery that the UK could offer. It was incredible, wasn't it? That first day, yeah, I've got a couple of pictures from the second day. Yeah, I love this one. But the, um, yeah, that first day, there were like sort of funnel clouds going on and stuff, weren't there? And it yeah, was it was. Well, <laughs> not. I. I mean, people had amazing. I mean, I, yeah, was, I think it's the most amazing days flying. The second day I've, I've had, well, both days were incredible. I, I was quite nervy again because I think it was my first flights on a new glider on the on the flow spectra. Mm-hmm. And I, there was the other guy there who was flying one. What's his name? Simon. Very nice fella. Simon, Simon Twist or Andrew? No, not Simon Twist. He's got one since, but it was Andrew. Um, Andy, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Williams, wasn't it? Yeah. And he'd, 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 I think he'd thrown his reserve on his or something recently, yeah. and he was quite. So that was giving me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> and it yeah. was a full-on day. It was, a, it, was, it was one of those days where when you took off, it wasn't so bad. Then you'd hit boomers. Then you were in, flying among rain clouds. It was a weird day. Yeah, no, it was amazing. It was, I think it was a, definitely the strongest day I've ever had in the UK. Yeah, it was yeah, a, well, a both, magical both, both Yeah, Yeah, that, that second day was just incredible. Look, two triangles set out, just a choice of fly the big one or fly the small one. And it was just, people just, you would never think you're going to get around it on a day like that. And it was just amazing. Just, look, I mean, yeah. that scenery there, to be flying a task with great people in that scenery was just amazing. Yeah. And so yeah, if anyone's listening and thinking, oh, well, I can't do the North-South Cup, well, do, you know, oh, drop me a line you know bribe me whatever it's, it's pretty <laughs> flexible where's Bri- the set bribery is the way i got in and how was it sorry bribery is all about bribery there you go. Yeah, a few, buy, buy a few drinks or something and um yeah it's like and uh, it, commitment is more important than quality as well these days Anyone who's anyone who's turned up, you know, several years in a row will definitely get in again, or, or shown shown good commitment because it's that's what it's all about. We've, we have a slight slight problem sometimes. If it's too far no- north or too far south, then only half the, half the team turns up from the you know from the, from the opposite end of the country. But um, which is ludicrous because even the the the, the raffle, the bit at the beginning, that yeah, all of it is just it's. It's got all the elements that are missing from good competitions um, worldwide. It's got all those elements in it. It's fun. You're meeting up with people who you live in the same country, but you don't see them for the rest of the year. It's fun. It's entertaining. It raises some money for charities. It's, it's got all the elements that other comps lack. Plus then, the flying can be full on and serious. Indeed, great. Well, um, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I've been. It's what I think it's the sort of thing I feel proudest of, perhaps, in my flying career that, that we got that off the ground. And I mean, it all, Hugh, all, all uh, credit to Hugh as well. Hugh, behind the scenes, to some extent, is the one that really pushes it along. You know, he's he's even those sort of. Yeah, just no no credit to Jockey because he's from North. Yeah. So all the credit to us Southerners. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'd like to touch a little bit away from flying, mate, if possible, because I mean, I, I could talk to you all day about flying, obviously. Um, but you're the other side of 
your life is something that interests me in the, the yoga and the, the yoga aspect of, of what you do. It's sort of, um, it's so multifaceted that like I use a lot of yoga for rehabilitation, but then you obviously have like tantric yoga and meditative yoga. And I just wondered like where your interest stemmed from, how did you pursue it and, and where you've taken it really? Uh, well, it's funny because I mean, I, so the reason I kind of became an expert, I'm a sort of, you know, expert, I work on the history of yoga through texts and anthropological fieldwork and stuff in India. Um, but the reason I got into it was because I'd spent years in India wandering around with Indian holy men. And one of the things they do is yoga. And that's about the only thing of what they do that you can study through Sanskrit texts. The rest of it is just sort of passed down through word of mouth and teacher to pupil. So as a result, I ended up studying the texts of yoga. Most of my colleagues have come into it from the other angle of having become... Click back onto your main screen, sorry, Jim. Click back onto your main screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, so um, yeah, most of my colleagues have kind of got into yoga here, you know, in the, in the West, and then and then so I come at it from a slightly different angle. For me, it's kind of part and part, just one aspect of the broader world of what these Indian holy men get up to. You know, I've spent years living in that world, um, and I almost sort of maintain a distance to some extent from from the. Uh, so what's Tim Pentreath Wes can you ask Jim to do some yoga so performing <laughs> oh, do some juggling <laughs> juggling Jim I can do that that reminds me of something yeah I, I did a one of my first nationals I was um suddenly called on stage because the prize giving was being delayed to do a juggling show so I did a sort of combo yoga juggling thing um it was Steve Senior just collared me I didn't know anyone he said right on the stage go. um we definitely I, need a video of that at some point I don't know. Hopefully no one got that on video. I'm not sure how confident <laughs> I was then. Um, uh, but with the, the yoga stuff. So yeah, so I've, I've very lucky. So I got into it kind of, um, as I say, not by design. I started studying history of yoga properly in about 1995 when I started my PhD, because that was a, what they call a critical edition of a Sanskrit text on yoga. And no one had really done that before. So that involves going to India, going to libraries, <clears throat> monasteries temples finding manuscripts of a text and it's a bit like chinese whispers you'll get a bunch of manuscripts of the same text so you've got to compare them all work out what you think the original was translate it and so forth and then i realized at the end of that that there was lots more to do and i've been pursuing that ever since and i've kind of been very lucky in that when i started yoga was still a bit kind of esoteric you know hippie fringe thing and over the course of the last 25 years it's become this huge mainstream thing. So people want to give me grants to keep doing research. And that kind of <laughs> so I've been able to, I'm like, just coming to the end of a five-year project. I was a great team and we've been working on the yeah, history of yoga through texts and interviewing people in India and looking at old art historical materials, that kind of thing. How much of a part <coughs> of your life is yoga? Or are you just more interested in the history of it and the study? Uh, I do it most days, yeah. Yeah, my teacher, I had a teacher in India who was, you know, he was revered as a master yogi. But it's funny, you know, the sort of things he was revered for doing, I probably can't talk about on when I can, when <laughs> I, I could in public. But it's not just being a bendy contortionist. It's doing strange things with, with other parts of your body and stuff. And, you know, and it's more, I mean, yeah, it's a very different world the way, the way that, you know, the yogis in India, <clears throat> they'll do a sort of intense practice period when they're young. 
And then the idea is that then they've got attained control of their body and mastery. And then they'll only do it every kind of every, you know, every month or two just to kind of keep themselves in check. It's not like this. And they're not so obsessed. The whole, the whole, uh, you know, kind of focus on postures in the West is, is very much seen as a preliminary practice in India. It's something you do to keep the body fit and supple, you know, so that you can sit in meditation for long periods and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's kind of quite, I, I, I try not to, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I try to say that there is lots of continuity because otherwise my work becomes less relevant, but really it's, it's quite a big disconnect as well. I mean, that, I think that's why it's so intriguing. And it's because it's so diverse. And then you get like, obviously um, now the commercial side of yoga, yoga so massively commercial now. And then uh, like I use uh, yoga when I meditate and then through meditating, I, I find yoga and it's something that I really enjoy. I don't know the history of yoga, but I do like the fact of um, when you strip back all the, buy buy this mat and use these pants and do all that when you get rid of all that and you strip that back and you start to look at the more the more buddhist or the more um ancient indian ways and you you realize that it's more a spiritual journey than it is just about a pose or an exercise i really enjoy that i like i med- meditation has been a big part of my life because especially when i was fighting i struggled to shut my brain off so I've used meditation a lot, which made me discover yoga really. And I like the more traditional aspects that you seem to, which you seem to have explored. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I mean, that's well, that good, good for you. Yeah. I mean, I think people, everyone, well, I don't know everyone, but a lot of people realize there is more to it than just the postures, don't they? But it does. The focus seems to be kind of 90% on that now. Do you think it's helped you in your flying at all? Uh, the, the meditative understanding, or do you think you've been able to use anything from, from Indian, from India, shouldn't you be able to use anything throughout your flying? I have, I, I haven't thought about it so much recently, but I definitely used to notice a correlation. If I, if I made the time to have a good yoga session in a day before I went flying, I'd generally have a good flight. I can't work out exactly why. Maybe it puts you in the right headspace, I suppose, to yeah. keep relaxed and make, make good decisions. I've never seen you flying with a funny shaped harness or anything, so <laughs> you're not flying cross legged or anything. Like, <laughs> no, no. Like, eke out some extra kilometers for getting you to straighten your legs. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, yeah, yeah, it wouldn't be very good, would it? Lotus position whilst flying, not very streamlined. <laughs> no. Um, mate, listen, we've. Um, we got some questions. People have been firing some questions in, so I'll, cover, I'll get onto them because I don't know how in depth they're going to be. Okay. Uh, let's have a look at some of these questions that we've got. Uh, Sean should have sent them over to me. Right. Um, uh, did I hear right? Chachu is no longer with us. Is it Chachu? Uh, yeah, Chachu. The, the, yeah, sadly, the, the guy in the, who ran the chai stall in uh, Beard. Yeah, he died a few years ago now. It must be five or six years ago, I guess. I guess, yeah, you've like a, I guess you've got like a, a big group of friends out there now who you frequently see, you know, you visit, you visit beer regularly. So you've got a big community out there, you know, quite yeah, well. absolutely. Although they've kind of been diluted now, as I said, when I first used to go there, you know, there'd only be a dozen at most really. And you'd know everyone, you'd, every glider in the sky, you'd know who it was. And now, now like I say, peak season, I think there's probably 300 people there. So it's sort of, it's not quite such a homely thing. <laughs> but Chachu's grandson has now taken over the chai shop. Um, okay. He's known as Babalu, and he runs it. And uh, 
the poor guy, he had a bit of a nasty flying accident. Actually, he flies, he busts his leg, I think, but he's, he seems to be back, back up and, and going all right. So there's that continuity there. Um, but yeah, he was great. Chachi was lovely. Okay. Um, what... Innes once told me the story of his flight from the Isle of Wight back to the mainland. I think he was the first. Is that on your bucket list? That's from Steve. Oh, no, from, I'm not sure, from Sean. So, uh, yeah, so that's obviously we spoke about that. Would Is it something you'd consider trying or you're done with crossing that? No, I would. I think it's probably better going that way because generally you're downwind and you're not going to hit a sea breeze. Do you know what I mean? If there's a sea yeah. breeze, it's going to be behind you. And people, there's plenty of people doing it. Is it um, Richard Perks? Is, he does it quite often, I think, now from the island heading towards Portsmouth. Um, and they, they do it pretty, you know, necky low heights. I think, you know, there's someone the other day left at about 2000 feet, but because you're kind of, you can rely on having the wind behind you and stuff. It is. It's okay. Yeah. That on yeah I'd, love, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. And as I said, there was a guy, I can't remember his name. Oh, Gibbo. I think he was something Gibson, Mark Gibson or something. He was a American hang glider pilot. He used to work for Airwave when Airwave were based on the island. He did an amazing flight to kind of Gatwick airspace from the island. Wow. He was learning to fly. How is yeah, the flying in the Isle of Wight? Hey? How is the flying on the Isle of Wight? How is have it? Have you ever flown there? Yeah, is it good flying there? Um, I haven't flown there enough in recent years, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on the Telegram group and stuff. But yeah, they're doing great things. You know, there's lovely ridge runs. There's amazing ridge runs. And there's pretty good thermic flying. And as I say, yeah, they quite, I mean, I don't know how many this year, but there's definitely half a dozen flights across the Solent, I think, this year. Amazing. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's so close. It's a great holiday venue. And if he's got flying, I mean, like a lot of people now, my holidays seem to revolve around, can I fly when I get there? What can I, you know, I don't, I don't go on holiday to get punched in the face. I do that enough in the day <laughs> anyway. So what can I do? Can I fly there? If it's not comps as well, like it's nice to go somewhere where you can just, and that's just down the road, which would be amazing to fly there, stay for a weekend and fly all weekend as well. And then fly back. That'd be good. And then fly back. Oh, in an ideal world. Um, so what are your plans um, now for the, are you, I mean, you're still working, you're still teaching, but your plans for the rest of the, the year you have anything big planned you hoping to get back out to beer when we open up again i guess yeah i had been hoping to go in the in april but i can't see that happening to be honest that's all looking a bit tricky it's a big festival as well there's these um kumbh mela these huge festivals in india where all the sadhus and yogis and everyone go and that's happening in march april i was hoping to get to that but i don't think that's going to happen so now i'm hoping for um for october november but i was just talking to eddie recently eddie's eddie's um got this enormous old removals truck. I mean, huge, huge, great thing that he's converting into a camper van, a van, camper truck. And he's very keen to, we're, we're doing a first aid course with Jockey and, and Matt Wilkes at the beginning of April. And then we're thinking of heading up to the Highlands, up to Scotland to spend a few weeks up there in April. Amazing. That's, that's, a, night, that's a dream, whether it'll happen, I don't know. But yeah, why not? Sounds amazing, an amazing crew. Yeah. Yeah, fun. those are you. You won't. Eddie's so. When I've every time I meet Eddie, he's so unassuming. He'll turn up, doesn't hardly speak to people who if he knows you says hello and stuff. But then he'll take off and just flies amazing flights, does amazing things. He's so you would never think by looking at him, he's just this adventurous guy who's off flying amazing things. And he'd be on a Delta and I'd fly everybody for the day. 
just yeah, I, I love flying with Eddie. Yeah, that was very impressive for North South Cup. He did a good. Yeah, yeah. Now he's trying to flog his glider on the back of that. Won the task <laughs> North South Cup. <laughs> like the guys who've got Enzo threes who say it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Beer is great, but there's a huge amount of untapped potential all over the Indian Himalaya. Well, I can't see the rest of that question. Just... Oh, that's from Chris. Well, he, know, he, he knows the answer. He's, he's, he's testing me. Well, Chris Lovell. He's, he's an old, old hand. He's one of the very first who ever went to. So what would you, where else would you like to fly it there? Well, there's, um, I mean, there's a whole range of the Himalayas, isn't there? Up to, I'd, I'd, I've hardly flown, have I flown at all? No, I haven't. We we were going to try. We did try last whenever the 2019 with a bunch of people tried to fly as far east as we could, but the weather wasn't doing it. I'd love to go and fly in the Garhwal region, which is like the bit just west of the pool border. Um, where else? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm maybe I'm up for a bit more exploring because I used to rent this this cottage. It was really nice in Beard, but then my landlords took it back off me, which I was a bit pissed off about at the time, but. You know, they'd retired and uh, fair dues, they wanted to use it. And in fact, nowadays, I don't get don't get so much time to go there. So not having a base is quite good because it gives you that impetus to explore a bit more. So maybe, yeah, I think and I'd, I'd love to go to Garwal, as I say, that region west of Nepal, where all the, you know, where the source of the Ganges is, source of all these big holy rivers and, you know, amazing scenery. And friends of mine who have flown there say it's generally pretty amazing. Yeah, it yeah. does sound amazing. It's definitely... Definitely now on my list. I think the further east you go, it gets um, it gets more uh, humid. You know, the okay. eastern bit, like there's Arunachal Pradesh, those sort of places. And friends have been there, but not quite so good. I'd love to go to the Karakoram. I went to Pakistan, actually, March last year, but not for flying, for a work trip. And I absolutely loved it. And I'd love to go back to... Go yeah, to I'd like to go to Pakistan. There's, they have really good falconry in Pakistan. And, of course, yeah, traditional, yeah. Yeah, traditional falconry, which I'd like to go for. And then other people have said about the paragliding potential. So that that would be somewhere that would really interest me somewhere out there, Pakistan, I think. Yeah, some, some, someone has just said, <laughs> I, hate, I hate asking these questions. I'm going to, though. The scariest moment on a paraglider. Well, the, the, the Isle of Wight, I'd never completely lost it and thought I was definitely going in the water. That would be scary. Uh, throwing my reserve in that comp, that was pretty scary. I think actually, though, one of them was with John Sylvester. And we would we were dreaming to go over the back of this, um, uh, you know, over the back of the main range towards a mounted mountain called Mani Mahesh and we did manage to do it a, f- a few years later John had been in there before I hadn't and actually I'd got to the pass before him taking a different route or something I was waiting there and then I lost height I got right down to the level of the pass and John came through and he was he was way higher and we, we didn't have radios or something and then he went for it I thought, okay John's John's gone for it uh what do I do what do I do I'm not I'm not very high I'm not really I saw it I went for it and it was literally like going over, you know, imagine one of those guys in a barrel going over Niagara Falls. All the wind was blowing over the pass. And I just plummeted the other side thinking, oh, my God, I'm just going to just stuff it straight in. What can I do? What can I do? And so for a minute or two, that was pretty terrifying until it sort of smoothed out and I was able to 
get onto a spur much lower down and then it was into sun and I you know the, the, the flushing had stopped but yeah for a minute or two I was like I, now I'm just like a cork bobbing in the ocean there's absolutely nothing I could do to prevent it it's just like where, where's this going so I think yeah that still stands with me I think John you bastard you're still up I should I should have gone when I was high you know <laughs> I mean I, I hate asking those questions scariest moments because it's the next time you get a deflation right it's the next it's one of the like everything's really scary when it's happening to you in that moment and then you you get over one thing and you fly on and then your next collapse like what and for that split second it's the scariest moment of your paragliding career again yeah yeah, yeah, it can, yeah. Be pretty, can be pretty full on at times so mate before we let you go what um Words of wisdom to have a uh, to have an extensive career like yourself, or advice to younger people where they should fly, what they should do, how they should explore the sport. Um, oof. Well, I, well, personally, I think you know the the the, the 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 flights, the best flights you have are when you're not, you know, you've got nothing to worry about at all. You're just totally up for whatever happens. Take the chance. That's one of the reasons I sort of I've never been that keen on competition i've had great times competing don't get me wrong and I, I totally understand why people love it but i just like being able to fly the day and take advantage of whatever's presents it and um so there's there's that you know just be prepared to improvise just to go go with whatever's best or looks best on the day um safety wise yeah follow your instincts you know if it's if it doesn't feel right don't fly i mean, i've been lucky i think you know i've been like lots of people, I've been doing this a long time. I know a lot of people who have died or hurt themselves really badly, you know. So I'm very aware of that. In beer, you know, three or four mates of mine have died. Um, so always have that in the in the top of your mind, safety first. Um, in terms of, but having said that, go to beer <laughs> if you want to improve your flying. You know, have, keep keep a good margin, keep keep safe. But it, I think it's you know it's one of the most it's certainly. That's why I keep going back there. It's one of the most amazing places to fly I've ever been. And zip uh, your harness up. Zip your harness up, exactly. In fact, probably just don't take your passport and your sat phone and all your money with you. That's yeah. you know, not There's really that. necessary. And, and uh, wear your crampon spikes, the spikes down. Yeah. To, we've learned valuable lessons from this evening. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, all, the, all the usual stuff, like get your reserve checked. I've got repacked. I've got to do that quite soon. It's been a while, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it might be a while before you need it, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, fingers sure. crossed. Fingers crossed, mate. We're having crap weather at the moment, so we're not missing out on anything anyway. No. Um, mate, listen, it's been superb talking to you. I absolutely love flying with you. It, I really enjoy talking to you. I could have just gone on and on all night, but I know people people start to drop off after a while and you start, you start to lose people. Um, we'll catch up again. Let's get a, let's get a right, season behind us and we'll see. Maybe I'll even come out and join you out in India. Um, but thank you very much for, for joining me. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, hopefully we'll see you at the North-South Cup, if not before. I think we've got dates, haven't we? Early March, or no, middle of May. Middle of May, I think it is. Middle of May, mate, yeah. And I think uh, anyone who's interested, just shoot Jim uh, a message with your best bribes. He can only ignore you, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll take IOUs, yeah. Yeah, there we go, yeah. Just send him the bribery stuff anyway. Even if you don't make it in, just do that throughout the year. <laughs> Start planning a year ahead. Um, no, thank Great. you very much, Jim. Um, also, thank you very much to the Avon Hang Gliding Paragliding Club for hosting this and paying the extra so we can have these big talks. We're working on another one for you. All of these are recorded for the 831 podcast. 
that this will be uploaded to YouTube. You can watch it on there. Uh, subscribe to that, I guess. And then the 831 podcast in audio form is available in everywhere you can get a podcast, basically. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast from, it's available there. There's ones with Jockey Wilson, Russ, I've had Russ Ogden on, and I am trying to get plenty of these um, done for you guys to listen to Paraglider Pilots. Wes, did you re- really mean Jockey Wilson? Or Jockey did Sam? I say Jockey Wilson? <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't had Jockey Wilson yet. I've had Jockey Wilson. <laughs> if he's still alive, is he still alive? Jockey Wilson podcast. Yeah, I definitely want to watch that one. That's going to be brilliant for everyone for a love of darts. Jockey Sanderson, he's done one with me. I should know these people's names. Um, yeah, subscribe, add us if you want to. But thanks again, everybody, and we will hopefully be back soon. Thanks, Jim. Cheers, Wes. Thanks, mate.